It is our joy, dear God, to be in your presence. It is our honor that you're involved personally and specifically and particularly in our lives, bringing us to the place where we're absolutely surrendered to the Lord God Almighty. What a blessed place to be, surrendered to God in the center of your will and at the apex of your blessing. And so we ask that you would use your word to further create surrender and humility and uh, devotion and love in our hearts. We ask your blessings in the lives of your people, that you would take your word and just make us closer and better, and that you would just do marvelous and wonderful things in the lives of your people. May they be blessed and your church be benefited and your kingdom family expanded as lost people have been saved. Have your sovereign way with us. We give you the praise and glory. We thank you for being our teacher and we are grateful in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. And so if you remember, we were discussing the most important person in the universe, and that is God, the Father. And as we were speaking of Him, we made the statement that God elected some to be saved. And uh, it's a doctrine that some, um, understandably, struggle with. And so we um, have a belief about God the Father, and that is, He is the first person of the Trinity. Uh, the Son defers to Him, the Holy Spirit defers to Him. He is the one who orders and disposes all things according to his own purpose and according to his grace. And so, yes, he is sovereign, but he's a gracious sovereign. He's a creator of everything. He's the absolute and omnipotent ruler of the universe, which is why I want to be closer to him than anybody else. I don't see people, I don't see job as my source. I see God as my source and everything else, they're just resources at his disposal. Uh, he's the absolute and omnipotent ruler of the universe. He is sovereign in creation, providence, and he's sovereign in redemption. And some people struggle with that. As creator, he is Lord of all people, but he is spiritual father only to believers. When you were born, you were born into the family of Satan. And when you're born again, you're born into the family of God, and then he is your father. He has decreed for his own glory all things that come to pass, knowing infinitely all things from beginning to end. He continually 
upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and uh, all events. It's amazing to me that airline pilots land at the wrong airport. They have GPS, they have control towers talking to them, they have what is known as electronic flight bags to give them direction. They have all kinds of charts and navigational aids at their disposal. And yet, sometimes they'll land at the wrong airport. But a goose with not even a first grade education can leave Canada and traverse the entire continental U.S. and land in Mexico or wherever that thing is going with perfect precision, going back to the same little lake it was before. And that's because there's a sovereign God who governs all creatures. He governs all events. Um, I'll have you know that God picked the weather today and there's nothing that we can do about it. And so it's important for us to know that in his sovereignty he is not the author of sin, nor does he approve of sin. He preserves the accountability of moral, intelligent creatures. And so he is never going to put himself in the position where we can say, well, you know, God, you made me so I'm this way because of you and it's your fault. God says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sovereign, but I've given you a free will to where you can choose. And this piece in red is what troubles a lot of folks. He has graciously chosen from eternity past those whom he would have as his own. Um, what that says to me when I read it is that there was never a time when God did not love me, when he did not want me. From eternity past, he had already picked me. He saves from sin all who come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. He adopts as his own all those who come to him. And he becomes upon adoption father to his own. And so God picked me. And God picked you. And I don't claim to know everything there is to know about the doctrine of election. I do know that it's important. I do know that it's a good thing that we think through these issues. I'll never in this world completely understand everything about the doctrine of election. But the time is going to come when I will stand and cheer with the rest of the universe, the sovereignty of God. And so, just as a reminder, 
Uh, God doesn't pick everybody, but the ones who are not picked are not standing there waiting and longing to be chosen. They're standing there demanding God to leave them alone and don't pick me, don't make me into the image of Christ. I like who I am, I like what I'm doing, I don't want you to disrupt my life. If you want to be saved, you can be certain you've been chosen. And so the Bible says that he is sovereign in his election because it's the ones he foreknew from eternity past that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those who he predestined, uh, he called them at some point during their earthly walk. And uh, he justified them, meaning he made them righteous in the sight of God. And ultimately, those whom he justified, he also glorified. He safely delivers them home and they share in the glory of God the Father for all eternity. We uh, also talked about uh, double predestination. Does God ever elect anybody to go to hell? And the answer is no. Uh, election never refers uh, to anybody going to hell. It always refers to God choosing people for heaven. And uh, one of the things we wanted to make clear is that the one who picked hell for us, the one who elected us to be lost, uh, that was Adam. And we'll talk a little bit more about Adam uh, later on. Does God ever elect anyone to go to hell? No, the Bible says just the opposite. God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And that, that is the reason that the coming of Christ is delayed, so that people can have the opportunity to be saved. And once uh, Christ returns, uh, that window of opportunity will be closed for many people who have heard the gospel and yet reject it. And uh, that's a part of what the tribulation period is about. It's about the wrath of God being unleashed on those people who have not repented and turned to God. And so the truth is this, that um, God can rapture the church right now and remove the Holy Spirit from residing in this world. And many people who have heard and not responded to the gospel would at that point uh, be sealed in to their eternal damnation. But God is not willing that anybody should perish. Therefore, he delays the coming of his son. And uh, we talked about why election cannot mean that God just looked down through the corridors of time and saw who was going to pick him, and so he picked them. Uh, if God was picking the ones who deserve to be picked, 
Number one, there wouldn't be anybody to pick because nobody has virtue, nobody has faith. The Bible says that we all turn away from God. And secondly, if God was picking people who deserve to be picked, that's not grace. Uh, that's people being saved by their virtue. And we talked about um, how God elected the angels who did not sin. Um, the day came when the angels chose side. Are we going to serve God or we're going to have another agenda? A third of the angels decided that they would rebel against God. And the others decided, uh, we're going to stick with God. And God elected those who stuck with Him. And uh, He sealed them in as forever sinless, eternally righteous. That's what God would have done with Adam also. If Adam would have chosen to obey God. We talked about um, the question, is sin inevitable? Was it inevitable since God's mind is so higher than our mind and there was never a meeting of the mind? Was it inevitable that there would be a clash of the wills? because we could never understand the will of God and sometimes um, God's will literally contradicts our understanding. And we said, no, uh, that doesn't make sin inevitable. What that means is that we have to trust God. We'll never be able to understand God. We, we will never have that kind of a mind that matches His. And so all that Adam has to do is just walk by faith and accept the will of God, which he could not understand. And so I would like to explore regarding election, this whole thing about salvation and eternal choosing and, and what God is doing. I'd like to explore that a little bit more today. Um, did God want Adam to sin so that things would work out according to the will of God? Um, what do y'all think about that? Did God want Adam to sin so that there could be redemption and God get the glory and he get to hold those accountable who are not the elect? Uh, did God want Adam to sin? What do y'all think about it? For instance, it was God who gave Adam the capacity to sin. Did God want him to sin? Okay, 
But you do know that it was God who gave Adam the opportunity to sin by creating a forbidden tree. Okay. But you know that God also made the forbidden fruit look desirable and good for food. Did God want Adam to sin? Are y'all going to talk to me? I appreciate you, Sister Glass. Um, what about the rest of you? Y'all going to talk to me? It was God who placed the forbidden tree not in some side spot, but right in the middle of the garden where it was unavoidable and day by day by day by day Adam had to walk past this forbidden tree right there in the middle of the garden. Did God want Adam to sin? What do y'all think? I'm not sure if that's a yes or no. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it was the devil um, that, that uh, it was God who allowed the devil to have free access to Adam and Eve. Was it possible that God was trying to tempt them? What would you what would you think about that? So you're saying God wanted Adam to sin? He wanted to tempt him, but he didn't. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I say that God gave them complete prophecy. He went away and was gone all day and came back in the cool of the garden in the evening. Time and opportunity to make any choice they wanted. Complete prophecy, no chaperone. So I have a question. Why are we talking about the character of God? 
Why are we talking about is God wanting to tempt them? Why are we talking about did God want them to sin? Why are we discussing this? Do we just want to confuse people? Would you all agree that shallow theology produces shallow faith? If you don't know why you believe something, anybody can talk you out of it. Um, it is in our times of deep suffering. Is that the times when we cannot understand what God is doing? When we're in the valley, we're in a dark and depressed place. That's where Satan destroys the faith of a lot of people by impugning the character of God. If God were good, you wouldn't be here. If God were good, He would have prevented this. If God were good, He would fix this. If God were good, He wouldn't let you be going through this. Um, the Bible says that when Job went through the loss of ten children and the loss of his health and the loss of his business and the loss of his friend, friends and the loss of his wife who said, why don't you just curse God and die? The loss of his reputation because everybody assumed he must have done something really bad. The Bible says in all this, Job did not sin with his lips, nor charge God with foolishness. Job, if you will just look through the book, you will find that it is rich in theology and that Job knows who God is. And that's what kept him in the midst of all that he went through. The reason a lot of people can't make it through is because they don't have theology that has enough depth to keep them at times like this. The reason that whole churches sometimes get doctrinally corrupted is because they're doctrinally ignorant. And someone comes along with something that sounds good and feels good, and they're often running in a different direction, like the church there in Galatia. So, do you remember this verse? My people are destroyed. They get their faith conquered, defeated. How? lack of knowledge and 
God says, because you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. How does that work? There's a lack of knowledge. Do you know what that leads to? It leads to a rejection of the knowledge that you had. When you have shallow theology, you don't just hang on to it. At some point, you will reject it. You will ditch it. And that leads to rejection for use by God. If you cannot embrace the Word of God, and if you cannot embrace theology, if you don't have any word to stand on, you're not useful to God. And it leads to people choosing to forget the law of God. They turn to something else for hope, for direction. And of course their children follow along with them. And it leads to God forgetting our wayward children because they are saying, this is irrelevant. Um, this doesn't do anything for me. This doesn't work for me. If your faith doesn't work for you, it won't work for your kids either. Is what is the normal. And so that's why we're talking about the character of God. You better figure out who God is before you get to the valley. Why would God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden where it was unavoidable? Why would God call Adam's attention to the tree? Why would God say to Adam, this is the one thing you cannot have? When I was a preschooler, I was at home with my mom. And she was going to go across the street to her sister's house. And we had just gotten a brand new wood stove right there in the living room. She was only going to be gone for a few minutes. And before she left, she pointed to a silver knob that was on the flue. I could not even reach the knob. And she said, do you see this knob? She said, do not turn this knob. She didn't explain why. She just told me, don't turn that knob. I hadn't even thought about the knob. But now she said, don't turn that knob. The only thing that's in my head is, what does that knob do? My mom went across the street. I got a chair to stand in to reach the knob, to turn the knob that I never would have turned if she had not called that knob to my attention. And she comes running across the street and there are people with pills of water throwing them onto the roof trying to 
to put out the fire that I had started on the roof by turning that knob and allowing too much heat to go through the flue and it caught the roof on fire. What happens when something is called to our attention and we're saying, and when we are told uh, you can't have this? Makes us want it. Question? Why would God make that forbidden fruit attractive if he did not want them to eat it? He wanted to trust Adam. He wanted to have faith in Adam. Did we lose one projector? Did one get unplugged or something? It went off for some reason? Um, so, we should note that God made all the fruit trees to be pleasing in the sight, uh, to the sight, and good for food. So it's not that God said, "I'm going to set him up. And I'm going to make this one tree appealing." Um, Genesis two nine says, "All the fruit trees were pleasing to the sight of Adam and Eve, and they were good for food." Say again. That's right. There was only one that was forbidden. And, um, but all of them were pleasing and good for food. And so it's not like God singled out that tree. And uh, God didn't just place the forbidden tree in a prominent spot. What else did he place in a prominent spot? The tree of life. Yep. And so let me distinguish something for and so let me distinguish something for, for, for you all, and that is this, that it wasn't the tree of good and evil, it was the tree of the knowledge. And so there are some things God doesn't even want us to look into in terms of our understanding or learning about. 
there are some things God says, this, this is just information that is off territory, that is, that, that is out of bounds, just leave it alone. For instance, does God want us to look into how to do occultic stuff, seances and spells and Ouija boards and, and all that? Does God want us to look into that? Not at all. There are some things God says, just leave it alone. And so it was with this tree. But um, what was the point? Was it that God wanted Adam to sin? No, that was not the point. The point was not to provide a temptation every day, but to provide a choice every day. Which is one of the things that Sister Atkins said. God, here's what he wanted. He wanted Adam to make the choice every day that I'm going to love God and I'm going to trust God. What does God equate love with in Scripture? Obedience? That's right. The one who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He wanted Adam to make that choice every day. Trust me and obey me. But he also gave Adam something else that he could choose on a daily basis. And that is, you can hate me. And you can show that by your disobedience. And you can distrust me. You can find your own path. You don't have to trust that what I'm saying is the right and the best thing for you to do. Is your choice any different from day to day? God gives you the exact same choice every day. Love me and trust me. Or you can hate me and distrust me. Um, did God want Adam to sin? God clarifies that. James chapter 1, verse number 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Does God allow the devil to tempt us? Yes, he does. And the devil has a different design. When the devil tempts us, he is trying to harm us. He is trying to weaken us. When God allows us to be tempted or tested, God is trying to strengthen us. When you're facing something over and over, it can wear you down and you give in to it. Or it can build you up 
And every time you reject it, you become stronger. And that's one of the things that um, is helpful for Christians to know that every time you say no to sin, you get stronger when it comes to that sin. So, why election is necessary? Because your daddy, your first daddy, who was created perfect, placed in a perfect environment, body constructed to live forever, perfect health, direct access to God, had divine fellowship with God, was ruler of all life on the planet. Your daddy, Adam, with eyes wide open, chose to become a sinner. He knew exactly what he was doing. He rebelled against God, the most loving, the most holy person in the universe. That's what he did. His sin broke fellowship with God. It disrupted the spiritual life that was flowing from God to man. As God had warned him in advance, he was now spiritually dead. Spiritually unresponsive. He could no longer interact with spiritual things. And because sin is not something that man can undo, his condition is permanent. He is now a sinner by nature. You've heard people say, I'm going to get myself together and then I'm going to come to Christ. It doesn't work. Sin is not something we can undo. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. Everyone who is born to Adam will have sin in their DNA. Um, every atom, every molecule is corrupt, has sin. And guess who is his direct descendant? I am, and you are. And that's what theologians refer to as total depravity. What is total depravity? Some people hear that phrase and they, and they say, oh, well, that means that I am as bad as I can be. That's not the definition of total depravity. Total depravity means in totality I am contaminated, that everything about me, every atom of my body has sin in it. That's total depravity. That in my totality there is no part of me that is unaffected by sin. And so Romans 5, 19, through one man's disobedience, that many were made sinners. Everybody. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that's why it says Christ became sin. Because he was paying for Adam and everybody else's sin. Why is the election necessary? Because Adam 
can't fix it, and Adam doesn't want to fix it. Adam is hiding, and that shows that he wanted nothing to do with holy God. He wants nothing to do with God. He's hiding. He's covering up, showing that he's ashamed and guilty. He's blaming God. He didn't say, oh God, I'm the problem. He said, no, the woman that you gave me. Shows that he was hostile toward God. He was blaming God. He was impugning God. And so at this point, the fair thing for God, the judge, to do is to send out to hell. That'll be the fair thing. But that's not the only option that was at God's disposal. So in response to Adam's sin and condemnation, God has three options. Which option would you choose if you were God? Option number one is this. God could do nothing about Adam's sin problem, and he could just let everybody, including Adam and Eve, everybody go straight to hell. That was within his right to do that. That was within the realm of justice to do that. And that would be an impressive display of God's justice. But there would be no display of love for humanity. Justice, yes. Love, that attribute of God would not have been on display. Option number two, God could do something about the problem Adam created and how he could let everybody go to heaven. Is that the option you would pick? That would be an impressive display of love, but where's the justice? The attribute of the righteousness of God would not be on display. Here's a third option. God could do something about Adam's sin and extend grace to everybody and special grace to some. And so everybody has grace extended to them where Christ died for them and they need to choose to repent and turn to Christ. Their penalty has been paid if they will accept it. Now that's an impressive display of love that God saved probably a billion are more hateful people. And it's an impressive display of justice that God allowed others to receive a fair sentence. And so with this third option, both the justice and the love of God are on display.
It's a universe that has both. Um, do you remember Brandon's question from last Sunday? He asked that question. Um, that seemed like a pretty quick question to answer. Um, but it's one of those questions that you can't answer in a few seconds. Anybody remember his question? It was, a, it was an excellent question. <laughs> you did ask a lot of questions, but there was one spot where you asked several questions and they all dealt with this issue. Why would God knowingly create people that would reject him? Couldn't God just let them not be born? Do you remember that question? Um, what do y'all think about the idea? Does it sound like a good idea? Just, you know, God, if you know the people are going to reject you, just, how about just let them not be born? That certainly was in his power to do. But, uh, I think there's some reasons that God would not do that. And here's that first reason. If God did that, that would be a world without justice for the criminals. Rather than facing the consequences of their wickedness, people would be let off the hook by instead being given oblivion. Perfect nap, perfect peace. Is that what the wicked deserve? Rather than canceling their retribution through non-creation, God prefers unrepentant moral beings be held accountable for their transgression and that we live in a universe where justice is real. God is righteous. He is holy. He punishes sin. Um, the second issue with that is that that would be a world where the judge is unjust. Why would that be unjust? Because if God just gave them oblivion, um, that's punishing them when there was no crime. That's punishing them before a crime was committed. And God is not unjust. 
to punish someone who has committed no crime. Why couldn't God just let them be unborn? That would be a world without choice. God would be choosing for them. Um, they wouldn't be making the choice themselves to choose oblivion and they would never know the difference that God chose for them because they just were never born. They would never be able to choose any good experience in this world because God just canceled them. Why would God just not let them be born? A fourth reason is that the world would be missing a lot of people if God just chose that they'd not be born. If they were never born, they'd be missing and their offspring could never be born and so the offspring would be missing. And a lot of people who were supposed to go to heaven would be missing because they were never born. A lot of people will be missing. Um, do you have in your ancestry any unsaved people? Any people who rejected God? Is there anybody who would say, in my ancestry, they were all Christians? I know that's not true of some of my ancestors. And so if God would have canceled them, then that cancels me too. Another reason uh, that I think that God would not just cancel them, that would be a world missing a lot of blessings and benefits if God just canceled those who rejected Him. So even people who are wicked, they are moral creatures with a God-given duty to the universe. What do we mean by them being moral? It means that they're not amoral. Amoral means you have no morals. You can't distinguish between right and wrong. It's like, for instance, if your dog eats you, your dog isn't going to feel any remorse. They're not going to feel like they've done anything wrong. They were just eating you because you're made out of meat. Your dog would feel no different about eating you than your dog would feel about eating a hamburger. There is no morals with animals. They are amoral, amoral. But we have morals. We have a way to distinguish between right and wrong. And you go, well, what about the psychopath? Even psychopaths, they try to cover up their crime, right? And that means that they know the difference between right and wrong. 
They may not agree with right and wrong, but they know the difference. And so these are people who have a God-given deity to the universe. God has given them certain abilities and gifts. A lot of services that we enjoy would not be possible if God just canceled all the people who were going to reject him. A lot of the advancements in technology and medicine and comfort and utilities and all kinds of things, a lot of those people are not believers. A lot of those people are unbelievers. If we eliminate those people, we also eliminate those blessings and benefits that God provided through them. And so this is key. God brings good out of evil. He does not cause evil. He does not approve of evil. But he does bring good out of evil. Uh, was it somebody who was God-loving or God-hating who rebuilt the Jewish temple, made it possible for them to reestablish their, na their nation? Was it somebody who was God-loving or God-hating? So someone who was God-hating. What about the third temple, the one that Jesus would have attended? Was that provided by somebody who was God-hating or somebody who was God-loving? Again, it was somebody who was God-hating. It was Herod. Couldn't God just let them not be born? He could have. But we should take this into account. The presence of evil does not make good people worse off. Instead, it makes us better off. How can we say that the presence of evil doesn't make good people better off? What's the answer to that? How is it possible that we could be better off with evil? Number one, God protects us from evil, doesn't he? We are shielded by God and the devil isn't just able to just do to us what he wants. That's Psalm 91, that's Psalm 125. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. But um, Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about Jesus. Do you see what was possible in the life of Jesus because of evil people? It says he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The man Jesus, even though he was perfect, he learned a quality of obedience through suffering that he could not have learned any other way.
What was the result of him having to deal with evil? God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And look at what God promises us. 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. What is that saying? That's saying that we could never earn the right to reign with Christ if it were not for wicked people making it necessary for us to fight the good fight. Because of the presence of evil and our response to evil, we someday get to reign with Christ. And so we'll stop here at this slide. Um, why couldn't God just let them not be born? It's important for us to know that for every loss incurred by evil, there is a disproportionately large gain for good that God creates. Um, that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That when you look at the suffering that we face, that's not even worth comparing with how God's going to pay us back for that. It's like investing a penny and earning a million dollars with that penny. Who would want the pennies to go away? James, he says, count it all joy. Every loss incurred by evil uh, there is a disproportionately large gain for good that God creates. An example, Joseph being sold into slavery. Who would want their brothers, their own flesh and blood, their family members to sell them as a slave to get rid of them, get them out of the family, out of their lives? We don't want to ever see you again. What wickedness that was. But what was the outcome of their evil? The whole nation was saved. The whole nation would have gone into extinction during the famine. And by the way, Joseph became second in command of Egypt and lived a rich and opulent and privileged life. For the evil that was done, there was a world of good that came out of it that would have never happened.
with an example a little undesirable or evil and the disproportionate large gain. If I drop one grain, one seed into the ground, it dies. But there is also this germination, this life-giving thing that God makes happen, and this one seed becomes not a grain of corn again, but an entire stalk with thousands of grains of corn because of the death of that one grain. And Jesus talks about that, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What's an example of there being some evil and then disproportionately large gain? Jesus being murdered. Doesn't get any worse than that. You give your life in a very sacrificial fashion to serve sinners who hate your father. You're lacking sleep, you're lacking nutrition, you are denied any kind of pursuit of life, and you're just focused on saving these people, showing them who God is, and in the end, they murder you in front of your mom, and you're naked, except for this little one cloth. And you're not just murdered, but in the worst way possible. What came out of that evil? A world of believers. Could God just have them not be born? He knows they're going to reject Him and they're going to spend eternity without Him. Could God just let them not be born instead of letting them spend eternity lost? Yeah, God could have done that. But God, with the ability to consider every option, picked the one option that would give the very best outcome, all things considered. Um, we'll stop there. Questions? Um, and I meant to mention Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are the called according to His purposes.